Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Guy Harrington, the founder and CEO of Glenhawk, which he launched in 2018. Glenhawk is a challenger lender that has achieved a huge amount in just two years, including securing funding lines from the likes of Shawbrook Bank and most recently, £200 million from JP Morgan. They have provided over £100 million of commercial and residential financing and having initially launched as a provider of primarily unregulated residential bridging loans, Glenhawk has now received FCA regulation, which is an incredibly tough process nowadays and has been putting in place the infrastructure that will allow it to offer a greatly expanded suite of products ranging from homeowner mortgages through to later life products. But Guy has previous entrepreneurial experience within the UK real estate sector as well. Since 2010, he has been responsible for developing over £100 million worth of prime central London property. And at the same time, in 2012, he invented the world's first voice-based dating app, Revlar, I hope I pronounced that right, with a patent for social matching and integration using the voice, which, following a major funding round, he sold to Ventro Media Group in 2015. Um, so welcome, Guy. Thanks for coming along. Yes, and, Rob. Thanks for having uh, me. Firstly, a voice-based dating app would <laughs> just be an absolute nightmare for me with my sort of tongue-tied list there. God knows what I, God knows who I'd end up with. But what there? Yeah, that's that's cool. Yeah, that, that was a, an interesting period of uh, of time. Totally unrelated to property, of course. But it, I mean, briefly, that was. I mean, a friend of I was living with a friend of mine uh, in a flat share in Fulham in oh god, probably about eight nine years ago, I think now. And um, I came back from a Tinder date one night and it didn't go to plan. So I said, oh, I remember Blind Date with Scylla Black back in the day. I wonder if we could do something similar to that. Uh, and we discussed it and thought we were pretty mad for a few minutes and then uh, decided to do it. He built it because he was, a, and he still is a very good um, developer and coder. And uh, I went out, got a bit of funding and, and marketed it. And um, yeah, it was a bit of a laugh, um, quite enjoyable. But, uh, <laughs> certainly not something you want to spend your life doing it's not was never really a passion of mine um, but uh, no an enjoyable period of time for sure good stuff and so how did you get into property then because obviously you started doing developments in and around central london yeah how did you get into that did you do i don't know property at uni or was it a family thing how did that come about yeah i mean no no, no like historical family side to it um apart from i suppose that Mum and dad always used to be refurbishing a room in the house or digging up a floorboard or just generally causing dust and chaos, which is probably responsible for all the allergies I've got these days. Um, and maybe because of that, um, it created some sort of interest in it, in, in wanting to probably complete a project like they never, never really used to do. Well, I went, I left school, I was never very good at school. Um, mathematically and English was, was terrible, my grammar and so on. Um, so I don't even know how I really got into university, but I went to Sheffield Hallam. Um, I did commercial property management there and I didn't really enjoy it. I was never really one for enjoying school. Um, always quite liked doing my own thing. So I did about a year of commercial property there 
And that, I suppose, spurred my interest a little bit. I was reading a lot of textbooks in the evenings and just trying to self-educate, really, using the internet as a fantastic tool to, to find out what others knew, look up inspirational people within property and see how I could get there one day. And then, I suppose, off, off that, um, in short, I moved down to London, got a job um, working for a guy exporting cars to Singapore and Thailand, uh, which, was, <laughs> which was quite good fun. And in London, I managed to, uh, while living in London, managed to meet, um, through estate agents, some investors whom I would essentially just put them together. So uh, it's, it's quite a common thing now you, these days, as you know, Rod, it's, you, you find a deal, you find the, the possibility about it, and you connect the investor with the opportunity, you project manage it, and uh, you almost become a bit of an asset manager. So I did that for, oh, getting on for probably about six years or so, and worked my way up across ranging from small ground floor apartments in Fulham to doing a duplex apartment scheme behind Harrods, which we flipped about a year and a half ago, just at the start of Glenhawk. So did a variety of different projects, but all along the way, it was pretty much self-education, learning the ropes, meeting people and um, having quite an enjoyable experience along the way, really, which led me to, to where we are today. So yeah, to 10, 13 years of, uh, of developing in, in London and uh, it's been an interesting experience. So what made you decide to pivot them from the developing side of things onto setting up Glenhawk? Uh, good question. I think I enjoyed the development side, but at the time we were taking out bridging loans. So we were borrowing money from all the usual bridging loan guys on the market back in 2007, 2008. And I found it quite an expensive product. And, and it still isn't obviously the cheapest product. There's no hiding that at all. It's obviously the risk time opportunity. You can acquire an asset quicker and move on to the next one and so on. It's not a long-term product. But back then, there were very heavy fees. There were huge arrangement fees, huge exit fees. And you never really felt like you were in bed with a lender. It was always very much like the traditional situation with a bank. It's us and them sort of thing. And you're always having to jump through hoops and try and be the best you can be. And it's just not reality. So I thought, can we, can we set up a lender where you can speak directly to the underwriter throughout your whole loan process? You know what's happening. If you've got a problem, you pick up the phone, speak to the underwriter. If the underwriter can't help you, it will go to the director of lending. If Nick can't help you, then it will come to me. And it's just about having that personal touch with borrowers. And that was the main driver for setting it up was giving borrowers fairness on fees, great service, and a lender that they want to come back to. Uh, and isn't someone to be seen as on the other side. It's someone who will, who will help you on your, your property journey. So whether you're buying a a flattered auction, you're converting a, an office building into um, a HMO or multiple different units. There, there are so many different uses. You just wanted to help people. And ultimately, that's, that's how it all started, really. It was, I wouldn't say it was an accident. It was more of a, let's try and do it better. And, and so far, we've established ourselves as, I wouldn't say unique in the market. It's a very odd word these days and very hard to be unique, but different, I'd say, to, yeah. to what. You set up in 2018 and you've, you've done some brilliant things, which I mentioned in the, in the intro. So you, you've got investment or credit lines from Shawbrook and, and now JP Morgan, which is a, a, a seriously impressive feat in such a short space of time. What, what were some of the other challenges or what were some of the challenges in achieving that funding 
And how integral do you think it's been for your business? I know, obviously, the JP Morgan has been fairly recent, but mm. even the Shawbrook, which I think was a year or two ago. Yeah. How, how integral do you think getting that funding in has been to your business? Uh, I'd say it's been a huge part. I mean, in the early days, we had a single investor who, who was backing me on property projects. I went to him and said, this is what we want to do. Glenn Hawk, and he put a fairly significant amount of capital into the business to build out our initial loan book. Yeah. Um, so using his funds, we built out the loan book up to about just under 20 million using his equity. And that got us to a really good point. It gave us a track record. It showed we knew what we were doing. It allowed us to get all our processes and systems in place. And then on the back of that, we were approached by Shawbrook in August, sorry, probably about June 2018. Um, and we closed the deal in August 2018, asking if we'd like a, um, a credit facility with them. At the time, uh, being completely honest, I didn't really understand how it would fit in with the business. And it was a little bit of, I suppose, almost winging it. Every day you're learning in life and um, you never admit you know it all. There's always something to learn for sure. And it was a really good journey with, with Shawbrook. They brought on a firm called Insight Asset Management, which is a large pension fund to, to sit behind the deal on that. And really, the, the main reason why that worked so well and we got that funding on so, so quickly and it was so successful was it's the team, really. It's just, I mean, a lot of people may just see me doing my bit, being on, on podcasts, great podcasts like this and LinkedIn and so on. But really, it's the team we've got. We've got a fantastic group of not just skilled individuals but also i see as pretty good friends really who we're all a, a fun team here there's, there's about 20 24 of us at the moment yeah um and we, we all have that same goal of just being straightforward with our borrowers totally upfront totally honest and not ripping anyone off and it's amazing how far you can get just by doing that and being and being the nice guy there's enough bad guys in the world without um without trying to screw everyone over so and then that all um I suppose that then all flowed into into JP, uh, bringing JP Morgan on board. They were looking to uh, have their first private securitization with a UK, sorry, European-based bridging lender. And the, the process was from probably about October until March. It was a fairly long process involving hundreds of pages of documents, many, many hours. We had one UD day with them in the in the boardroom here um, that lasted from nine in the morning till 6.30 at night. And it was just sitting there answering question after question after question, which being the bank they are with the prestige they have and the, the capability was completely understandable. And uh, they're not going to jump into something blindly without um, obviously kicking the tires uh, and, and checking under the bonnet and so on. Um, so yeah, bringing those guys on board was brilliant. Um, it's allowed us to be in a position now where we can scale we can offer very competitive funding. We can compete against the, the challenger banks yeah. on pricing and we can beat them on speed, which is very key. As, as you know, Rod, in, in this sector, in, in, in property, you, wanna, you want certainty, you want to get your funds quickly and you don't want to be waiting three months for a drawdown, which you might have experienced. Um, and, and as well, when you're negotiating with a purchase, what it normally comes down to from the vendor's side is price or time. Yeah. And they'll always tell you both are important, but normally they'll sway one way or the other. And, and that's obviously where you can make a bit of margin if you can work quickly. Yeah. You mentioned there you've got a team of 25 and, or 24, 25, and you get to now do all the fun stuff like coming on the podcast and things like <laughs> that. But when you started, I guess it's, um, and, and you kind of alluded to this, it's, it's, you had to prove the concept and 
you got that 20 million in funding first from from an investor mm-hmm. and and then you had to scale up so a lot of our listeners will be used to having to raise uh, finance whether it's investment into their business whether it's in securitizing investment by an asset mm-hmm. what advice would you give to some of our listeners then who are trying to raise more finance who maybe haven't got to the stage where they're they've grown their team enough and they're still wearing a few different hats in the business maybe like you were when you started yeah. um glenn hawk i imagine it was sort of <laughs> one minute you were doing a bit of marketing the next minute you were meeting investors and it was relationship management and a bit of operations so would you what advice if any would you give to them about I suppose in helping them to to raise finance in a in a sustainable and efficient way. Yeah, I suppose if you if you look at it on a, a project level or even a business level, it's I suppose my my experience or what it's worth. Clearly, everybody's got their own uh, their own situations and circumstances, and it's it's never as easy as it seems. I'm not going to lie and say it was easy because it clearly it isn't. It, it's always hard, um, but nothing in life is easy, really. But I'd say the 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 biggest thing I took away from one raising, I suppose, the equity to get Glen Hall going, yeah. and two bringing in the, the other funders was just—it's really just honesty. Um, which sounds bizarre, but just being honest of the situation that you're in is incredibly refreshing for a lot of people to hear. It's the same as if one of our borrowers comes to us and says, "You know what, guy? There's a CCJ on here. Um, it was for this, this, this. I'm telling you about it now before you find it." it has this very warming effect of, of trust. And clearly in life, we only deal with people that we trust and um, we feel we can have a rapport with. And I think in, in the terms of getting the equity on board, it was really just about selling that story, telling a very good story of why you want to do this, how are you going to do it, how are you going to deliver it, and not just focusing on all the good points, but really focusing on what can go wrong as well. Because in like in the, in Glenhawk, for example, if something goes wrong, people come to me straight away and go, "Guy, this has gone wrong," and I want to hear when it's gone wrong. I want the bad news first, not the good news. Yeah, yeah. And something strange happens when when you when you do act like that. You say, "Listen, here's a really good opportunity." However, this is what can go wrong with it. And if you highlight the negatives for investors or uh, senior funders or debt finance people, you're helping them do their job, and they almost think, "Hold on, what? Why are you telling me this?" and I've seen it on this side of the business where a borrower comes to us and explains the negatives of the situation and they need us to understand, and we usually do. And I've seen it on the other side where I've had to go into a, 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 lent, a borrowing opportunity or an investor coming in and, um, and do the same. So I think in a nutshell, I'd just say it's, it's really about trust, highlight the negatives, uh, clearly highlight the positives more than the negatives, but just don't hide anything and, uh, and you won't get caught out. And Really, that's what investors want these days is um, is clarity, and especially in in times like this. So that would be my biggest tip. Yeah, I totally agree with that, especially on the, on the kind of just drawing attention to the possible issues that can come, but also maybe saying, well, this is what we're doing about it. Like these, are, this is what could go wrong, and this is what we're trying to do in order to make the chances of it going wrong much less. Yeah, um, and, and 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 like you say, it's building sort of trust, integrity, honesty, all these sort of buzzwords that come about, but they're they're real and they're needed, aren't they? If you especially if you want to be in a long term uh, relationship with lenders or investors, which let's face it, everyone everyone does. You want to do a deal, 
give them the money back and, and, and ask for some more. Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, that's so true, Rod. And it's, I mean, we, obviously I can't name names or anything, but we have, uh, we had one borrower who would just, I mean, it's, the deal looked good, the underwriting looked good, but he would outright lie to us in every situation. He, he'd make up every excuse under the sun. You would not believe it. And now his name's got round the short-term lending market and people know not to, to lend to this guy. And it's, it's a real shame because he's shot himself in the foot for, for future funding. Uh, and it's a very small market. Quantum-wise, it's multi-billion pound market. But really, I speak to probably five or six other um, directors of bridging lenders. Yeah. And I'd say that covers maybe 50, 60% of the whole market. So it can soon get round. Hence... Have the honesty. Don't try and pull the wool over. Otherwise, it all just comes back around to get you. Definitely. And it, and it is a small world. I know I um, spoke to a couple of people about lending on, a, on something we're looking at. And uh, the second person I spoke to said, oh, I've already seen this. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, other, the first person had already showed them. So it, it, it really is a small world yeah, when it, it comes to that stuff. So what else do you think have been some of your challenges in terms of scaling up um, Glenhawk? Uh, I suppose, apart from the, the most obvious one, which is um, COVID-19, which uh, seems to have hit everyone, even our business seems to have affected absolutely everything in the world. I'd say we had quite a few political events during that time. So we had, what did we have? We had Brexit, which of course has been going on for quite a while now still technically unresolved and who knows where that's going to end up that creates uncertainty makes it harder for us to raise funds um, makes more importantly makes our borrowers nervous and we don't want nervous borrowers we want to we want confidence in the property market and um, the election uh, as well in the run-up to the election last year I'd say in the was it a three-month run into it something like that we had a lot of uncertainty had a lot of buy-to-let landlords saying to us listen I'm going to sell my portfolio off and many of them did. They, they liquidated quickly because they were fearful of um, a Labour government and uh, mm. higher taxation on, on second homes and on landlords. So we, we had quite a, quite a bad run over the last uh, two and a half years, I'd say, of just political uncertainty. And then, of course, combining it with, with coronavirus coming in um, hasn't made it easy. But I suppose if you just ignore external factors, because you can't, we can't control them, nobody can. You've just got to accept yeah. it and prepare the best you can for eventuality but I suppose internal it's been I suppose getting building the right team has been the hardest challenge um, clearly people are business people deal with people they like um, and you want to make sure you get a team of people who are equally as passionate and so far we, we've achieved that clearly as we get bigger and bigger it's it's harder to keep that culture and and bond between everyone um, but I'd say that was the biggest challenge is just getting in it's a bit like dominoes you want the one perfect one to knock into all the rest and make all the others perfect and the reality is that you will get a couple that don't quite fit that fall off the table or just aren't quite right for the business and um i'd say 90 percent of what i do is, is people really it's yeah uh, like any business in life it's just um, um human human resources is, is one of the hardest challenges but it's one of the most rewarding as well when you get it right seeing people grow and um and succeed and especially when you said at the beginning that your focus is on, on the people, on the borrower, having that relationship, calling the underwriter and things like that. And that must be hard to scale that as you get bigger mm. to still be able to offer that, um, what's the word, sort of, I guess, 
uh, very personal intimate personal kind yeah. of relationship with with the borrower and the underwriter and well the lender in general. Yeah. So that that must be quite quite tricky to to keep that going as well. Yeah, I mean, you've, yeah, you've hit on highlighted a big problem there. <laughs> Rod, that's, that's very true. It's something I wasn't quite thinking about at the moment, but um, yeah, you, no, you, you're very right. It will be hard to do, um, but I think there are ways we can do it. There's ways we can uh, encourage the communication between the borrower and the uh, the, the lender. Um, yeah, it, it it will will be an issue, but it'll be a good problem to have because I know we can solve it. Yeah, it's just a case of keeping that connection. Um, I never want any borrower to feel like they're stuck in a, a queue of bureaucracy and they can't get in touch with someone who will say, you know what, we can do that, we can't do that. That's, that's the thing. And it's, we all want an answer, don't we? That's all we want. <laughs> do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when you're, or when I am getting a, a main contractor onto site and the guy selling me the, the service makes out that they're going to be the guy on site every day and then you sign that contract and then there's someone else that you've got to deal with and yeah. it's sort of passing you down the line down the down the sort of ch supply chain really and it. i think it's just again having that understanding who the clarity understanding who you're dealing with yeah. and who you're going to be dealing with and what the process is if if you need to contact someone which exactly yeah it's the same with lawyers as well, isn't it, though, that when we, we have to clearly deal with lawyers in every single case and for a lot of our corporate stuff as well. And they'll pass you to, oh, here's the lovely shiny partner who's going to be doing your deal. And this is how much it's going to cost. And then for the next three weeks, you don't hear from the partner. They <laughs> and then you're, you're left with uh, a, probably a very capable junior, but you're not getting what you thought you were going to get. So. Exactly. Yeah, I think I think uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head there when it just comes to any professional service, I guess. <laughs> Um, so what does a typical client or deal look like for you and Glenn and Hawk? Well, that's a good one. Um, I'd say it's, it's pretty varied, really. We, it, you could be, a, say, a buy-to-let landlord expanding your portfolio. You could be a, a developer looking for a loan to during the sales process. It could be an auction purchase um, where you're just, you need certainty of funds within the 28-day uh, period. And then it can just be pure development, going from commercial to resi. It could be a resi extension. It could be a pub into eight flats, for example. Just trying to think of one of the schemes we've got at the moment. There's one down in, in Kent. It's a lovely block on the seafront. He's got 25 apartments in that, um, sold off half of them. And then the rest, uh, our loan is for the sales period, essentially, which yeah. due to COVID, one of the, the positive side effects is that um, seaside towns are having some sort of resurgence. So they're selling quite well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a real mixed bag, really. It's more, I suppose, any client of ours would be someone who's looking to strategically take advantage of a, uh, of a real estate position who needs short-term finance. We're not a long-term solution. Yeah. Um, we're only here for the bit where, as you know, Rod, we, we take... We get taken out by a buy-to-let lender or someone yep. much cheaper. We're just there for the five-day is the, usually the quickest we can do it in turnaround, um, stabilization of the asset, and then moving you on to um, the, the future on long-term assets, then hopefully you'll come back in the future for another bridge. So, so you'll still do the, the structured finance, say, when you finish the development and you're, like you mentioned there, you've got the sales period until, until that can go as well. So... Yeah, I mean, we call that a developer exit, but I mean, it's it's, yeah. Just, yeah. it's just bridging. It's some lenders have 
five or six different products, but really they all do the same thing. It's just, I need money for a short period of time. Can you help me out? Here you go. But yeah, so that's a classic developer exit, wanting to sell the asset and just needs a little bit more time um, to, to do so. And we'll help them do that. And we won't just lend to them for the sake of lending. We'll look at the asset and go, okay, are you comfortable they can sell for these prices? I, we never want to lend to anyone who is stuck repaying our loan. Um, not just for us, it's more for them. It's not a position you want to be in. Uh, no one wants to be in that situation. So um, you've got to look after the client and make sure they're not committing to something that they shouldn't be in the first place you're in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, you're not going to get long-term sort no. of comeback on, on, on that, are you? No, no, no If it doesn't work. And um, is there a specific kind of, are you focused in the southeast or do you mind where it is? Is there a minimum loan size, maximum loan size? Yeah, um, I'd say our portfolio at the moment, um, we've got, what percentage is it? It's probably about 75% southeast, yep. southwest, south, so pretty much everywhere south from Bristol across to East Anglia. We've got a few in the north, um, but it's pretty well weighted um across uh, probably 50 percent of that is in southeast and then some in central london we don't have a huge amount here at the moment which is probably good with coronavirus um and then the the average loans are average loan on the book at the moment is about seven hundred and fifty thousand. um and uh the minimum loan size is 300 uh but we will look at a little bit lower we get quite a few people bridging from us for um quick home purchases so like these home buying agencies yeah um, quite a few people coming in, uh, buying houses under 250, 300,000 that need to bridge the gap pretty quickly. Um, but the majority now are, yeah, larger loans, 750 to one and a half million. Uh, like the schemes I mentioned down in that one down in Kent, that's slightly bigger. I think it's about 2.6, 2.8 million pound loan, quite a, quite a big block. Um, but yeah, a good, a really good mix at the moment. Um, as I say, we can do lower and we can do higher with the JP Morgan funding line up to 5 million. Um, but at the moment, we're just clearly with, with COVID, lowered our LTV slightly and uh, yeah. not not pushing as hard as we can. Just, I suppose, coasting for probably another three, four weeks until some more house price data comes out. And then, we re- then we'll be able to see where valuations actually are. Well, I suppose from your point of view, that's you've either got two options, haven't you? You've either got to reduce your loan to value or you've got to just stop lending. Yeah. Um, in in terms of, of risk, I'm not I'm not sure what else what else you can do. Um, yeah, I mean so, some lenders have put their rates up, um, but I don't really see what that's achieving because our cost of funds has stayed the same. So why yeah. should we the borrower's cost? Doesn't make sense. Um, but yeah, you're right. The quickest way is just LTVs, and until you have clarity as to what house price values are like in the UK at the moment, which we'll need a couple of months of data to to see yeah. what the effect is, um, and then you can start upping the LTVs a little bit and taking on a bit more risk. Um, so what, what would your, um, getting your crystal ball out then, what, what's your, what are your ideas for the, for the housing market for the future then? Where do you think that's going to go when furlough schemes end? We've had news today about Boris Johnson taking off red tape for a lot of the retail city centre buildings to mm. go into residential. Yeah. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on well, firstly, I'm definitely no expert, so <laughs> your listeners should ignore everything I'm about to say. But in my in my humble opinion, um, I think there's, there's there's certain positives you can bring out of this crisis, which are bizarre positives. I think I think one of them is that people have been locked in their homes for 
not locked, but they've been in their homes now for over 90 days. And a lot of the time you've been looking around, looking at your walls, ceiling, conservatory, garden, whatever. And you've been thinking, oh, I want to change that. I want to change that. Hence all the rush on B&Q and the, the homeware stores. So you've got that effect. The other side of it is that you've got people who are bored of where they're living and they're thinking, okay, let's move. Let's, let, life's so short. This has been such a chaotic event. Why not? Let's just go and live in Cornwall. Let's go and live in Devon. Why not? And then again, in the city, you've got people who are, who are taking that risk and actually moving uh, somewhere and, take, and taking the risk of doing it, even though really, uh, if this had happened a few years ago, would you have had such a cavalier attitude? I'm not sure. Mm. Um, but people generally seem to be getting on with it as such. So I think my forecast is that clearly you're going to see an outward flow from London to a degree. Um, London still has its appeal. Nothing's really changed. Uh, it's still here. It's in Mayfair today outside. It's still quite busy. Clearly the cafes aren't open. Quite a few shops have shut. Um, so there will be an outflow. But then will it make London slightly more affordable? Probably. But I can't see there being a huge correction just purely due to the lack of supply here and, um, the, and, and the demand that has historically been here. But I think the, the issue is going to be, I mean, people will disagree with this for sure, but I think there'll be this red wall, which I think was a term from Boris's campaign during the election that things north of Birmingham will probably get hit a little bit harder and then again this is me I don't really know much but you there's just a feeling from from people I've spoken to conversations I've had that north of England will get hit slightly harder um, but we just don't know I mean the reasons behind that are it can be employment it can be um, decrease of engineering jobs up there uh, um, major manufacturers moving out Rolls-Royce in Derby, for example, that's looking a little bit shaky. Um, I'm from Derby originally, so we just don't know. And I think I can't say, okay, but housing prices will drop by X because it'd be stupid for me to say it just causes panic. That's we'll leave that for the Daily Mail to, 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 to put on. The other thing is, like, I think when especially like media talks about um, all these things happening and the effects that that has on property as an investment, they kind of forget hmm. that they're comparing that to maybe the stock market, which is a very liquid uh, asset. Housing is not. It's it's totally a liquid. And so what you're giving up in liquidity, you're gaining from volatility. So that's, you don't get to feel that volatility because by the time it actually gets around to, I don't know, completing on a three-month purchase, if you're lucky, uh, unless, of course, they're using Glenhawk services and you can do it within five days, then not every day. <laughs> then then it, it it doesn't really you don't really feel that um, unless there's a a long term down. Yeah. It's like a bit like two thousand and eight in London. There weren't. I mean, I think house prices, sold house prices, dropped by two percent, um, mm. and that's that's not because values went down. That's just because people didn't sell because they'd see, okay, well, I'm not, re- I'm not ready to crystallize that loss yet. Yeah. Um, and exactly. I do think there's a, there's a certain element of that. And like you said, up um, in maybe not just North, but lower value places, yeah. people might be willing to take a 10% drop hmm. if it's 10% of a hundred grand rather than 10% of a million pounds. Cause they'll look at, right, well, how long is it going to take me to recoup that in whatever else I'm doing, whether it's earning, in a job or whether it's my other investments so yeah exactly and i think yeah it's property is inherently very safe 
Um, we're obsessed about it in this country. Englishman's homes is his castle, is the saying, and and all that, and far more obsessed than our neighbours in Europe. And well, it's a, it a good place to be, I think. But I think I think a big part of that is how property structured in terms of legals. Like you go to a few other European countries, which I won't name here, but the big difference is you get a piece of paper here with a red line around a little plot and that is your title ownership and a lot of countries don't have that <laughs> and you've got every man and his dog has a right to your land and this and that and so I do think and, and also it's like a decent legal or decent is the wrong word a fair yeah. compared to a lot of other countries and so that does attract a lot of um, foreign money as well I'm just not sure I can see that going down depend well depending on Brexit and uh, we also yeah, got exactly. about that now, don't we? <laughs> oh God, yeah, I think yeah. I mean, I totally agree there, Rod. It's um, it, it's a good place to for investment in property in the UK, and and also if you look at it, that people that are buying homes now, a lot of them are thinking, so what if values do slip? I mean, I'm not saying they will. Who knows what they'll do? But if you're buying for five years, does it really matter if it slips a tiny bit and you're buying now? And unless you're an investor and you're hunting the yield, then Clearly, you're going to look at that a bit deeper. But if you're buying for sentiment and passion, then that sort of goes out the window anyway. Even I'm guilty of doing that. It's, you, Absolutely. And, and it's even, hold, it doesn't matter as much. And even on the yield, it's, I, think, I think people fall into this trap quite a bit, especially at the moment, and especially over sort of the last, I don't know, 10, 20 years, where buy-to-let has just been this great performing asset. And now these mm. tax regimes have come in and various changes have happened. And they're comparing it opportunities now to what opportunities there may have already been and I just mm. think that's wrong I think I think if you're going to look at opportunities you need to compare them to other opportunities that are available to you right now um, yes actually when, when you start to do that things things become a lot more positive I, I find anyway yeah, yeah. Well, completely and if you just look at the situation we're in now look at retail for example it won't continue to be taxed like it is with business rates and yeah. the, 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 the rental income, which you had before, won't be there before. So clearly there's going to be massive change in retail. So, I mean, now is a good time to look at the retail sector and think, okay, what, what opportunities are there? And the one thing about chaos is it does create opportunity. And as you say, don't compare it to last year. We're in a completely different world. Look at what else you can do. Try and be a bit more strategic. Yeah, everybody's going to have to work a bit harder. And more opportunities will come up. Jobs will be replaced with other jobs, uh, more probably more highly skilled jobs as um, the UK brings in space and innovation and all the other things that Boris wants to do. Um, so yeah, there's always opportunity for sure. Definitely. So you mentioned again um, earlier on how what you are kind of doing at the moment, but what are you spending most of your time on in the business at the moment, and how has that changed maybe in the last well two years, I guess, since you started? Yeah. I suppose at the moment, it's a lot of it is just day-to-day -day running. It's, I mean, we're going through, <clears throat> obviously, a really quite bizarre period at the moment. So in the early days of uh, coronavirus occurring, there was a lot of sleepless nights. Um, I was incredibly worried about what would happen with the senior funding, what would our equity partners think, how many defaults will occur, so on and so on. But in reality, it's all worked out. Uh, the portfolios, the loan portfolios performed really well. Um, we haven't had to help any borrowers, which is great. They're all riding this very well. Um, and if anyone, any of them have come and asked for help, we've, we've discussed it with them. And a lot of the time they found their own solution, so, uh, we, which is great. So that was the early part of the year was just firefighting, essentially. But now it's all settled down. 
it's really just looking after the team, checking everything's running smoothly. Um, and I suppose lining up our new products for when we start to ramp up. So as you mentioned in your good intro at the start, we're regulated to do um, consumer buy to let now and homeowner uh, mortgages. So coming out of this, we'll start doing regulated bridging will be one of the first things we'll do. Um, so people wanting homeowners that live in their property, regulated deals that want to do a small extension or put a loft on or, or whatever it may be, we can cater for, for all those borrowers. So we're working hard on, on developing those products. We're looking at other potential second charges we can do on top of our, our current system, um, regulated, uh, not unregulated. Um, and then really it's looking for the future. So we're leveraging the business up at the moment. We're on the hunt for um, mezzanine debt, as you would call it in our structure. So yeah. a bit of background, the investment banks lend us a portion of our loan, then we have to top that up with equity and mezz. So very similar to a, a development finance project. Yeah. Um, so we're going out, raising some, some mezzanine debt um, to leverage our, our funding and, and grow even further. So um, we've got, got a quick question on that. What's that? What would that would that be secured against something, or would that be like a bond against the company? Just that yeah, right? yeah, that, that's secured. Yeah, so it's all it's all secured. Um, the the deal with J.P. Morgan was a um, private securitization essentially. Yeah. Um, so the mezzanine debt goes into that structure. So it's all supported by the assets. Right. Uh, so yeah, there's all assets behind it. Not a bond. Um, I'm not a fan of mini bonds or anything like that. I think we've, we've seen in the press recently a few lenders, uh, some rivals, I won't call them rivals, they're just, a lot of them are quite sharp, sharky, but um, run mini bond schemes and they collapse and sadly people have lost a lot of money from them, especially with the nature of how they're, how they're issued, how they're regulated. Anyway, that's a completely there's, different there's, there's a great um, newsletter that comes out called The Bond Review. Oh, really? Uh, I can't remember the guy who writes it, but it's quite tongue in cheek. But it's um, uh, you can subscribe to it, and it, it it just basically calls out all these companies. Really? It just does one almost one a week that are sort of going asking for money, and uh, it, it kind of breaks down why they shouldn't be. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, it's it's an interesting read anyway about that. Well, some of the some of the proposals are just bizarre at what they do and it's it, it's fraud and saying i see it as complete fraud. oh it, oh yeah absolutely it's yeah absolutely yeah. and even in even in the bridging sector you still get that now you get you do get lenders that who need to chase very high yields and they'll look at your asset and go oh we quite like to own that and it's called loan to own yeah, and it's yeah. while it's not only illegal it's uh morally corrupt and it's fraudulent and there are lenders out there that will still do that and it's quite bizarre because they can get away with it and it's some of them have been doing it for years and it just completely shafts the client and, um, and they've got a reputation for it. Do you think that's because they are under pressure from their, maybe their funding lines to, to get these IRRs up um, in, in order to pay that, that or, or do you think it's just that no. just crooks in the, in the business and, yeah. and they're, they're looking for an easy... It really is as pretty simple yeah. as they like the asset. They think, okay, we'll lend on it. You've got credit history wouldn't lend on, but we like the asset and that'll be it. Whereas yeah. a normal underwrite for us would be you look at the borrower, you look at their background, you look at the assets, you look at a mixture of absolutely everything. And we don't want an asset at all. We never want someone's property. We never want to repossess. And if our underwriting has been correct, we'll never be in that situation. Uh, and Touchwood so far, we we haven't had that out of 100, 185 loans, I think, in two years. So we've done a hell of a lot of churn and we haven't had any problems. We've had 
borrowers come close to to having an issue, we've we've said, listen, we've got to we've we've got to get out of this situation, and we'll help you to to do that. But they've always got out. So, but other lenders, then I'm not saying every lender's like this. There's probably five or six in the market I know of that are like this, um, and they will just go after the asset, and they won't help the borrower, which um, is sad to see. But it's getting better. The more and more people are cleaning it up. There's some great businesses out there. Some of our rivals, like Lend Invest, for example, Octopus. Octane Capital, they're three of our rivals who I think operate good, really good businesses. Yeah. Um, and if we can't help you, then one of those guys will. And you know you're going to get good service from them, that's for yeah. sure. You, you mentioned there about bringing new products out. Talk to us about the process of bringing out a new product and how quickly you can bring that to market. So if you feel right there is, I don't know, due to COVID, there might be, I don't know, a new opportunity for, for Glenhawk to go into a specific kind of new new market or new new product, really. Mm. How quickly will you be able to get that out the door? Uh, that's a good question. I think if, if you look at it like a project management process, the first step would be, I've come up with some mad idea in my sleep and uh, we're, we're, we're going to go out and launch it. We'd... We'd sit down, so we'd sit down with our um, head of underwriting, Kai. We'd sit down with Annabelle, our head of operations, Damani, who runs our compliance, Darren, who's our head of treasury, and probably Nick, who runs our capital markets. And we'd sit down and go, okay, this is the idea. From all those different perspectives, is it possible? And can we do it? I'd say the the hardest part is the funding, Um, getting funding lines into bridging loan businesses. Even before COVID was extremely hard, now it's obviously going to be even harder. Um, that's the part you've got to nail down because clearly it's okay coming up with a product. Anybody can do that. It's yeah. how are you going to get it to market and who's going to back you on that? And if it's a new product, you've got to show some track record on that as well. So they're going to want to see you know what you're doing and how you do it. So from a timescale perspective, we will have launched regulated bridging. If it wasn't for COVID getting in the way, yeah, we probably launched it in about four months, five months, I'd say. Because um, with our current funding line, we can do regulated bridging. Yeah. Well, was, I, I, that was kind of going to be my follow-up question: is 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 your current funding line almost like a hunter facility where you can come up with certain products and and rather than doing the hundred pages of documents you had to fill out at the beginning, go here's what we're doing. Can you can you sign off on this? Yeah, uh, it, in a nutshell, yeah, we can do unregulated bridging, regulated bridging. First, second charge, commercial, mixed commercial, resi, and so on. And then we can do consumer buy to let within that as well. Yeah. Um, but that they've said we can do that. But again, it's, there will be a process involved there. It won't be able to do everything, that facility, but it will be able to get us quite a long way down the line. Uh, we will need to bring in other senior funding lines yeah. as we grow, um, which is normal. Some of the biggest bridge lenders have got four or five, even six funding lines in there. So um, yeah, the support's there, but that'll, that'll take this time. And also, I guess you don't want to be sort of beholden to just one funding line because if you if you've got just that one, then what happens if it goes? Yeah, and and also different senior funders have different appetites. Um, so some may some commercial may be flavour of the week's week. It's residential. You need that certainty of funding, and we've yeah. got the certainty with our with our funding lines at the moment that we know what we can underwrite. We it's all underwritten in house. None of our loans go out of here for someone else to go rubber stamp. Okay, you can do that. It's right. yes or no within these four walls. So 
with some situations with certain funders, they have to be signed off externally. So with us internally, if we can do a deal, we'll do a deal, um, which is almost like it's our own money, even though well, it's and that, and that, that's, I guess, why you can move so quickly on it as well. Yeah. And it helps. And it's, it's that trust there that we're underwriting the correct deals. The, the senior banks know what we're doing. We're not messing around. And um, there's a hell of a lot of behind the scenes compliance and QA checking that goes on to, to ensure we can operate like that. Um, but it's very helpful. As I say, it helps with, helps with the speed and uh, doesn't take us three months to do a language is good. Yeah, definitely. And um, so in terms of right now, and obviously right now, like we said, is a, is a bit of a bizarre situation with COVID and everything. But what would you say is the biggest risk to your business at the moment? And what are you doing in order to mitigate against it? Oh, biggest risk now. Um, I would say COVID, but it's a bit, bit of a cliche now, isn't it? Everyone can... Everyone... Well, and I guess your answer to that would be we're reducing loan to values until we've got clarity on... Yeah, I'd say, I'd say that, that that's a bit of a risk. I'd say, I mean, the biggest thing at the moment is going to be, it's probably set us back by a year, I'd say. And speaking around the market, most people are saying the same thing, that write this year off because... Yeah. Your growth slowed, our, our growth slowed. I'd be lying to say we've just continued on a massive upward trend. Um, as I said earlier in, in the chat, we're just just going slowly now, planning for the best we can, serving our existing borrowers, still doing new loans, and just being very cautious. And that's all we can do right now. Um, but as I say, the I suppose the frustrating part for me, always wanting to push forward and grow, is it's delayed us by a year. We had a five-year plan when we started and this has knocked us back to 2019, which, hey, we can't do anything about it. So just got to accept it and, uh, and move on. And I guess the fact that it's not, this is not a, a risk that's just happened to your business. It's happened everywhere. So um, it, it's, it's industry-wide and even more sort of macro than that. So yes. that when you're going and explaining that to other people, actually, it's, it's, it's not such a big deal. It's not like, oh, well, that's a bad business we don't want to be a part of. It's, well, that's understandable and everywhere's, yeah. everywhere's seeing the same thing. Well, that, that's the almost the bizarrely, in an odd way, comforting thing about coronavirus is that it has affected absolutely everybody. So no one should ever feel alone that they, they're solely being affected by it and the whole world's crashing down. It's Everybody's been hit. I've been hit personally. Uh, I've got a small portfolio of properties. They've had issues with tenants, blah, blah, blah. Um, Glenhawk's slowed business and everything has just been hit. So for anyone that even might be listening that thinks, oh God, this has really messed up your plans. It's messed up everyone. So yeah, yeah. you've just got to try and adapt and, and get on with it and have some positivity. It's amazing what a smile in the morning and a little bit of positivity does to, to help you get through even the worst of the days. So um, yeah, just keep going. And so what's the next, uh, next thing you're looking to do in terms of Glenhawk or even would you be going back to doing any more developments yourself? Um, what's, what's in the pipeline for the future? You know, I'd love to do developments again. I really would. Um, it, I mean, it's just great. I mean, you know, being a developer yourself, it's, it's that thrill of taking something from that. Same with the business. It's like a blank canvas, turning it around, letting it out, selling it all the people we meet on the way, it's a rewarding experience. And I'd love to get back to it, but Glenhawk just takes up so much time, in a, in a good way, for sure. Yeah. Um, it'll be probably another 
year and a half before I can step back a little bit and get back into developing, which is what I would love to do again. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, for now, it's just, it's focusing on growing the business out, new products and um, getting out of this odd time that's, that's coming. I think when, when following ends in, when is it, September, October, yeah. it's going to change the landscape a little bit. Uh, no one really knows what it's going to look like, but I'm fairly confident the government's going to throw a few firecrackers into the economy to get it really going again. And That's what it seems like, like yeah. yeah. Let's hope it's not as bad as the Daily Mail seem to think it is. <laughs> no, I don't think anything's ever as bad as the Daily Mail. Sort of <laughs> Take comfort in that. Yeah. Brilliant, guy. Well, thanks so much for coming on. And if our listeners want to uh, learn a bit more about yourself and Glenhawk or even get in contact about some funding, um, and debt on that what, what's the best way for them to get in contact yeah thanks for having me Rod it's, it's, it's been really good so if anyone wants to get in touch about a loan if it's a loan you can send it to lending, t- lending team at glenhawk.com uh, if you want to send me a question about anything it's ghgolfhotel at glenhawk.com um, happy to answer any questions I post some interesting stuff on LinkedIn now and then which uh, there's probably more waffle than anything else, but happy to happy to speak to anyone about any questions they've got. If they want to take bridging loans for the first time, what they want, what they need to look out for, even if they've got a quote from a rival firm and they're going with them and they just want some impartial advice, I'll I'll happily um, happily discuss and give my thoughts where I can to help people out. Brilliant! Thanks very much, Guy. That's been absolutely fascinating, and I'm uh, I'm still going to have to go and Google this voice dating app as well because. I think I think I think we we brushed past that being a being a don't sign up to it. <laughs> cheers, Ryan. All right, cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on the Rodcast.